From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. As marketers, it's the time to strike the jargon and have much more direct messaging, much more concrete value, talking to people, using personalization, but just even striking from our vocabulary those big, long, jargony marketing phrases and things that we used to use. People don't need it and don't want it anymore. Hi, folks. Justin Schreiber here. On today's program, I'm joined by Lynn Capozzi, the CMO of Acquia, a company that helps enterprises deliver great digital experiences. Lynn started her career at Lotus, one of the pioneers in office productivity applications. On today's show, Lynn breaks down the reasons that Microsoft ultimately overtook Lotus and the lessons she learned that have helped her to stay ahead of the competition in subsequent years. Midway through her career, Lynn decided to step away from the for-profit world in order to launch a foundation to support the Boston Children's Hospital. She'll talk about why and about how that experience has made her a better marketer. Let's jump into the conversation. Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, Lynn, I'm really excited to dive in and chat about your professional experience I think, though, it's important for our listeners to know that you actually carry the illustrious title. You were a certified tour guide at the State House in Boston. So this is an area that we need to delve deeply before we get into the the marketing side of the the house. Can you give us your favorite fact from that tour? I'm sure you led this tour many times back in the day. That's true. I did do this tour many, many times. Let's see. My favorite fact. Probably one of the first parts that you go into in the state house when you first go in is uh, I remember saying we are now entering the Hall of Flags, and the Hall of Flags was a collection of four various four hundred different flags uh, that represented Massachusetts and the areas. So very historic, um, and I specifically remember that as people were walking in, I would be saying welcome and welcome to this beautiful Hall of Flags. It's a it's a beautiful state house, and for those that have seen it, the dome is covered, I'm sure, in gold leaf, but it stands out, and especially when the sun is shining down from the Massachusetts sky, it just it just glows. You can see it in the distance, that's for sure. So you all your life, though, have had a job. This was not your first job, and I know that your dad had a big part of that. Tell me a little bit about your dad and more specifically these mantras that he had for you growing up. Sure. So my dad was a big influence in my life, as was my mom as well. But um, as as kids, my brothers and sisters and I were always, you know, told we have to work. That was just a it was a mandate. It wasn't wasn't an option from early teenage years. And so, you know, I learned a lot from that in terms of you know his influence around um, developing a great work ethic, which I feel like I still have today. Um, and as I watch the rest of my family members, they do as well. So, you know, the mantras were, you know, you will work, <laughs> uh, you'll always work. And the other one I remember distinctly was you can't quit. You can't give up. So we are not quitters was something that we heard all the time. All right. So with that in mind, this next question, I think, especially prepared for your dad, let's talk about all the times you did quit <laughs> over the course of your life. Uh, maybe starting in school, we'll, we'll start off with that and then we can run through and we can tick them off <laughs> <laughs> or try to quit, I should say. 
Yeah, there were there were definitely times where I tried to quit. Uh, I specifically remember one time uh, when I tried to uh, downgrade one of my classes in school and kind of go down a level, like an academic level, and that was woo. I remember that conversation. Uh, so that didn't happen. I didn't <laughs> didn't make that change because that to you know to my dad peer like it was uh, you know almost quitting. And then just different sports activities as well. I would. Uh, participated in a lot of sports and I tried different sports and sign up for them. And it just wasn't an option to quit back out. Like if I signed up, you made the commitment, you will complete it. Yeah. Had to stick with it. And then I know you, uh, I think originally you were going after an MBA and a JD. That's correct. Yeah. When I went to grad school, um, I got my degree in business management. I went to graduate school, uh, as a, initially as a combo as a business, as well as a law degree. And I yeah. you know, pursued that for a while. And then I just uh, decided to focus on the MBA portion, got a little tired of school. And so just focused on the MBA portion and got that degree. I think there's a really interesting lesson here, though. I love that mantra of, of never quit. But there's actually a point in your life when you realize, you know, sometimes it's smarter to quit on certain things. They don't, you realize that time is a precious commodity, money is a precious commodity. And at the end of the day, you're trying to maximize your objectives. And sometimes that doesn't mean stay in school for another couple of years to get that next degree if it's not going to help you get ultimately to where you want to go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I agree. I definitely think there are times where quitting or pivoting, you know, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I learned that lesson when I was in business school and I was taking a class. I was not into the class. I was not interested in the class, but I felt like I needed to take it. My first daughter had just been born. And I remember coming home and talking to my wife and she said, you know, Justin, you don't need to knock it out of the park in this class. You need to think about the bigger picture, the responsibilities you have, what else you, you care about. And it was funny, but she gave me permission in that case, not necessarily to quit, but to reprioritize and do poorly in an area so that I could excel in another area. And that idea that you actually need to do poorly in one place to excel in another has stayed with me and really helped me in my life. Yeah, that's interesting. So this is my favorite story. We'll get into this a little bit more, your your time at Lotus, but between Lotus and IBM, you were there for like 20 years. And how did your dad react when you came to him and finally said, I'm, I'm going to be moving on to my next job? Well, I think you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can imagine. It was a, a big a big what? I, I definitely did it by phone because I didn't want to look him in the eye. So, um, yes, he was, yes. He still asked me today, do you ever regret leaving IBM? So, um, <laughs> you'll still ask me once in a while. It's funny. I love it. I love it. Your dad is a tough customer, but clearly he, he left his mark and it, it served yeah, you well. Absolutely. So, so the other thing I know your dad was a big fan of is everybody had, you had to have a job, you couldn't quit. And then you had to play a sport. Tell me a little bit about the sports that you played and, and kind of the highs and lows back in the day that you experienced from that. Well, I played many sports. I think mostly I focused on um, field hockey and softball. So um, I was not good at softball at all, at all. Um, but I had a great, I had a great team. My friends were on the team. It was as much of a social experience as it was a you know physical sporting experience. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I had like great, great, great wins, great highs, great lows. I think probably the biggest low I had. Uh, where I learned a lesson as well there was, um, well, you know, one time on the softball field when I didn't do well and my coach came running out to the field 
to be right in front of my face <laughs> in my space uh, to tell me what a horrible job I had done in the middle of the game. So I remember that actually. I remember that feeling. I remember the feeling of, you know, be of disappointment in myself, of embarrassment. Um, I, I, as I kind of talk about it, I can even think about where my head was at at that time. So good lesson for me in terms of it was one of those things of like what not to do type of category. Like yeah. remembering how I felt, you know, I think is a lesson for me in terms of dealing with other people and making sure that I never have that type of behavior, you know, to anyone. Yeah. Well, I love the fact that you took that and and clearly it was a tra traumatic experience, but you turned that ultimately into a win in that it helped you to become a better leader, better coach to other people later in life. Yeah, absolutely. There's also, I think, an interesting an interesting corollary there. You were you were good at field hockey. You weren't good at softball. I played sports as well in high school. One of the sports I was I was pretty good at, and the other sport I was abysmal at. But I think back about what that did for me, and I got I got some confidence from the sport that I did well, but the sport that I didn't do well put it in perspective. And what it allowed me to do is separate my own identity and self-worth from the performance on the field, because I knew that I was the same guy in either situation and that I just inherently did some things well and didn't do other things well. And in a sense, that was kind of a liberating thing. Yeah, Absolutely. I love the whole, I learned a lot about, you know, a team, being a team player, you know, literally a team player and what it means to be on a team and sacrificing and cheering for other people. And that I, I love that part about sports. I, yeah. I see it in my own kids and how they've learned that as well. So many great lessons there. And what I love about sports and I guess more largely in life and the experiences you have, there's just built in lessons and I think it's so important, especially at a young age, to put children in environments where they're stretched and they're uncomfortable and they're just going to get these lessons, to your point, that stay with them and shape who they become as, as adults. Right. So uh, tell us about Lotus Notes. This was this is uh, one of your first jobs uh, out of out of college. What did Lotus Notes do and, and how were they positioned at the time? Or load, I shouldn't say Lotus Notes, Lotus in general, the company. Yeah. So we were originally, the company was a spreadsheet company, mm -hmm. uh, you know, pre-Excel <laughs> uh, with a, a product called Lotus 123 and then multiple other products. But eventually one of the biggest products was Lotus Notes. And so um, I was I was there for, yeah, almost almost 20 years between Lotus and then we got acquired by, by IBM. Uh, and I had a variety of different roles, all different types of marketing roles. I... Uh, Typically, I would spend just about two years, sometimes a little bit less in each role that I was in. And so um, at the time, you know, the biggest thing that we were focused on was, as I said, was Lotus Notes, and it was a groupware product. So it was like when, you know, groupware first came out, uh, kind of a combination of email with also like a platform for communication between groups. So um, it was extremely popular and um, it, it was just a great experience. And so then we got acquired by IBM. And it took IBM about two years to figure out where we were. And then um, then it was time, I think, for, for me to move on because it felt a little too big at the time. Yeah. I remember Lotus 123. It was one of the first business-oriented applications I ran. And I, I remember I was on, I think, like an IBM 386. This was old school before Windows had even come out. So all the commands, you had to type them in. I had to pass a test. And so my boss was looming over my shoulder and I can to this day remember how badly my hands were shaking and I could hardly hit the keyboard because my fingers were just moving all over the place. 
but it was a hard, it was hard because you didn't have windows and, and the mouse and you were just trying to move around with the keyboards. And that was kind of what launched this era of business software that we enjoy today. Yeah, absolutely. It was unbelievably successful too. So what I, the question I want to ask you, they had a superior product at the time to Microsoft's office suite. That was the de facto standard. Why are we all using Microsoft today and not Lotus? <laughs> You're going to make me go back there? <laughs> um, I, I think the biggest move, the, big, the biggest thing that happened is we, the company was slow to adopt a Windows technology. So we were still on DOS. We made a bet around uh, IBM OS 2 at that time. So we didn't make that quick pivot and pick quick move into Windows. And that's probably, if I was to attribute it to one thing, that probably would be it. Yeah. That, that move that Microsoft made, which became a vertically integrated move from the, the operating system all the way up the stack was brilliant. And we obviously know how that played out. Is there a bigger lesson there though, that we can, we can apply today in terms of what happened to Lotus and pit holes we need to be careful about? Well, in many ways, I would say that Lotus ended up actually being successful because the Lotus product line was, you know, acquired by IBM. So that was pretty, that was a great success for the company. And lots of those individual products are, you know, became rolled into IBM products. So I still think in many ways it was, a, it was a successful exit for the company. Um, I think lesson is in terms of, I'd say the biggest lesson for me I walked away with is um, two things. One is make sure that you're, you know, make sure you can move quickly in the market and make sure that you, you got to predict ahead, right? So you got to, you got to try to figure out, you know, what's the saying about being ahead of the puck. I think being able to, to move quickly when you need to, I think is, uh, is probably a, a good lesson. And you know what? I think it's, was re that's really applicable for what we all just went through with pandemic. Cause look how fast everyone had to switch to digital yeah. and, and people had to switch their events. There were no in-person events. I mean, there were the retail stores were closed for such a long period of time. So very analogous, I think, to how quickly how quickly we all had to make those moves, you know, and uh, look at our businesses and what what, what our go to market strategies were, um, you know, this whole year during during pandemic. The other the other lesson I'd say that I learned from that period of time for me was especially when we got acquired by IBM. You know, IBM had a super focus on customers at that time. I'm sure they still do now, but during my period of time. And the less, one of the lessons I learned was th the customer is always right. And it's always a matter of focusing on the customer. So maniacal focus on customers, I think is like super important. And I, I still have that with me today. Yeah. Um, and I definitely learned and saw that a lot, you know, during IBM. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is absolutely one of the contiguous threads that, that runs through time. If you can stay focused on the customer, they will They'll be your lighthouse, so to speak, and 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 take you forward. I I was part of the Microsoft organization uh, when I was at LinkedIn, and I had an opportunity to kind of see from the inside how that company functioned. Satya, as we know, is a tremendous leader. He arguably could have fallen victim to the very success that they had enjoyed and continue to to embrace a closed stack, a closed platform. To his credit, he knew when it was time to open up and throw the walls down and embrace uh, many different products that were out there and create more of an open platform. So I, I think that just goes back to your point. It is essential that companies are agile, that recognize that things are shifting on a monthly basis and are open to wherever that might take them and not just being rigidly tethered to the past. Yeah, exactly. 
obviously you were enjoying your time at Lotus. You were there for 18 years and then another two with IBM. How did it stay fresh for you though? How, how did you not get to a point where you showed up and said, ah, I've been doing this for 15 years. How do I keep going? Well, I think, first of all, I love the company. And the other is that I switch roles so many times. So, you know, I, I developed a pretty good career path and I was able to move um, into different positions. So you name a position in marketing, I had it. So I was yeah. in the event marketing team. I was in demand gen. I did product marketing. I did corporate communications. Uh, I moved into um, I moved into sales for a while and did some sales overlay roles, sales management roles, came back to marketing, uh, eventually led a marketing team. And then um, one of my last positions was actually ran a whole product division. So um, for me, it was great. I was able to get some nice career mobility, you know, within the same company. And um, it was it was great. I learned all all different parts of the business and to the point where I was able to then run an entire division. And um, it was just tremendous experience. And that experience has paid off for me as I've gone into the various startups. I think that there's always pressure, especially among ambitious, aspiring people to try to move quickly through the career. The question that I often get from people that are young in their careers, what do I need to do to accelerate my trajectory? And I think you just shared some wonderful advice there. I agree with it. And actually, I did something similar where I spent time in product. I spent time in sales, obviously marketing. But I think there's an opportunity early in your career. Number one, work for great companies. Don't work for companies that are trying to figure it out as as you go, because you're just not going to learn the foundational skills in the same amount of time that you would otherwise. But number two, move around and get a sense for what's out there, how it all interconnects. And then you go through that inflection point where you've got the foundation and you can really accelerate through your career because of this experience you've, you've gathered. Yeah. And I think sometimes when you make those moves, there are times when you have to be willing sometimes to either take it. Let me feel like you're taking a step back or you're taking a lateral move and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And there were many times I think where I did that as well. And in the end, it's, it's never kind of a straight line in terms of your career, but I do think you got to be, sometimes you need to be willing and open to taking a step sideways or even a step back. Well, I always like to say, if experience is your gold, life will make you rich. <laughs> Stay focused on the experience and, and you're never going to go wrong. That's right. So you talked a little bit about sales, and I know you had a foray, not all uh, a bed of roses, though, on the sales side of the track. Tell us a little bit about um, about that journey, and specifically, I know at one point you were going after a promotion in sales. Um, yeah, so I had, um, I think we were talking before about um, kind of my, my sales experiences. I think uh, I had great experience, did really positive, did really well. Uh, for a couple of years. And then I was going for a larger uh, sales, I think it was a direct, maybe it'd been a director level, or it was like a team, it managed a team of people within sales. And um, I was up against my peer and we were going for this position and I thought I had it locked and loaded and uh, I did really well in the interviews and had great experience and a great track record. So I thought for sure I was going to get this this promotion role and, and I didn't get it. It went to my peer, uh, who I'm still friendly with today, by the way. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, I, I would say it's probably one of my most disappointing moments in my career. So what happened? Did you ever find out why you didn't get the job? I did find out because I asked. <laughs> I said, <laughs> I want to know, why didn't I get it? Why did you choose him? And the answer was because he wrote a plan. He came into the job interview with a business plan and said, this is what I'm going to do. At that time, it was, you know, a nice print and put it on the table and said, look, this is my plan for the group. 
This is what I'm going to do is my 30 and 60 day plan. He took the initiative. He wasn't asked to do it, but he put it together. And so my boss at the time said they felt like he was more prepared and had a plan to walk into the job. And I did not have a plan yet. Mm. I love what you said. I knew because I asked. That's such a basic concept, but so often overlooked. Absolutely. I, I like to say that the difference, when someone fails, the difference between that failure being a stumbling block versus a stepping stone is the ability to learn from it. And uh, I love it when people, I do a lot of interviewing. I could count on it on one hand, the number of people that have come back to me and said, hey, I didn't get the job. Can you just tell me why? Give me some coaching pointers. I would do that all day because to me, that shows someone that has the courage to face uh, a challenging situation, but also the curiosity to know what happens so that the next time they ha- they're in that situation, they're not going to repeat it. Right, exactly. So you went through that. And um, uh, I guess, fortunately for all of us, that put you squarely on the marketing track. And uh, obviously, things worked out very well. Along the way, though, I know you encountered some important folks in your life that really helped to shape you and became mentors. Deb Bessemer is somebody that you've you've talked about in the past. Tell me a little bit about Deb. Um, yeah, so Deb was running. Uh, I originally met her uh, running sales at Lotus, and uh, she was, you know, at that time, I think she was the only woman, you know, C-suite exec in the company, and um, you know, pretty common to be a pretty male dominant dominated environment at that time. So, um, so she was a great role model and, and mentor for me. And there's a couple of other women that I have as mentors as well, you know, throughout the years, and sometimes. You know, sometimes the mentors are super helpful. I talk with them maybe, you know, once or twice a year. Sometimes it could be a couple of years in between, but still helpful and still um, willing to have a conversation and help me with some challenges or, but but mostly it was, you know, I got to watch and see a very successful woman exec, which was, which was great and really helped shape me a lot. Was there anything specific in terms of the way that she approached her job or just what she shared with you that stands out? Oh, I don't know. I think there's lots of things like day to day type things, but probably, I don't know, probably the biggest one is um, she, you know, she was just a successful person and she ran her organization successfully. And it didn't matter if she was a woman or a man or she just took her place and she took her place and she sat at the table and she was just equal to everyone else, and which was awesome. That's probably the biggest lesson that I learned. That's Lynn Capozzi, CMO at Acquia. When we come back, She'll take us through how she landed at a company built on an open source project launched by a college student in Belgium. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. Today, my guest is Lynn Capozzi, CMO of Acquia. Up next, she'll talk about Dries Beatasht, the charismatic founder of Drupal, an open source project that allows companies to deploy and manage websites and publish content on the web. At Acquia, she's built a great partnership with Dries. And as CMO, she's setting a new standard for the way that companies deploy and evolve the digital experience. Let's get back to the conversation. As you move through your career, eventually you landed at Acquia fascinating story behind this company. And it's probably the company that many people don't know about. Maybe let's start off and tell us a little bit about what this company does and what's the origin story. Sure. So 
Acquia, we're the digital experience company, and we help people be successful with their web properties. And so the company is founded by Dries Bartart, and Dries is the founder of the open source content management system called Drupal, D-R-U-P-A-L. And uh, so Dries created Drupal in his college dorm (laughs) when he was back in college. And the company is now about 12 years old, by the way. And so he formed um, this open source community all based around Drupal. The community itself has grown. I think there's like 1.5 million people around the world that are that use Drupal and contribute to the community. It is the largest open source community. Um, and it is, so it, that's the product Drupal. Aquia was formed as a commercial company to offer support and services for Drupal. Um, and, and that's how we first started. We've expanded quite a bit into multiple product lines, but basically it's products that allow you to run and support your website as well as products that were or ancillary products to it, such as personalization product, marketing automation product, and products that work and support uh, a marketing cloud, a family uh, uh, grouping of products. So it's a really interesting story because it's, uh, you know, not only uh, the company is still has Dries as our CTO and technical leader, um, he's quite incredible. He's just an amazing, probably one of the smartest guys I've ever met. Um, and this, he la- also runs this very large open source community. And the community is is very tight. Um, it exists from people all around the world. And so it's just interesting. It's very cool to be able to work for a company that also supports the community and mm-hmm. doing good things for the community itself. Dries himself is an interesting figure in that he heads up this open source community. And in that respect, he has responsibility over this code that is essentially accessible to the world. But then at the same time, he's the CTO of a of a company. And one would think that there could often be conflicts of interest between the two, and especially having someone run both. How does Dries navigate that? And what have you learned in watching him in that? So I've worked with Dries for quite some time, and I continue to be amazed at one, how much he does, how much he gets done, and also the way he handles himself between Acquia and the community. So he definitely has two different hats, and he, you know, wears those hats where he's, you know, the lead in the community. At those moments where there are times where maybe it would be um, a conflict, he will remove himself. And so he will literally say, I'm not going to have this conversation because Lynn, you should go do this because you need to do what's best for Acquia um, in terms of considering the community. So, because the, the goals aren't always exactly the same, and uh, and he'll remove himself from that situation, which I give, which I have a lot of respect for to do that. Just going back to your point about putting the customer first, the integrity that's required to do what Dries is doing is incredible. But again, I think because he's focused on the customers, the end users, he's able to probably navigate a lot of those thorny questions that come up. Yes, he is. Yeah. I think he represents both really well, both the community and Acquia. So coming to Acquia, you actually didn't dive head first into the CMO role. You might say you dipped your toe in the water and quickly got in there, but tell us a little bit about how you came and, and kind of how you structured the first part of your stint on the marketing side. Sure. So, you know, this is my um I'm this is my second go around as CMO of Acquia. So the first time around, which was in the early days of earlier days of the company, uh, we were really work, working on a kind of uh we were building. We were building everything. We were building the marketing team, we were building our demand gen engine, 
we were, so I'd say we're, we were definitely in building mode. It was, mm-hmm. what's our messaging? Getting, doing category creation, getting an open source product, even to have it be noticed by the analyst at that point, which was unheard of. It was like, no, we're not going to put you in a category. We're not going to put you in a quadrant or put you in a wave because they didn't even touch open source software. It, because it was free, they couldn't figure out what box to put it in. So it was definitely like creation of a category, uh, a lot of work around messaging, a lot of work for quite some time with the analysts, as well as kind of figuring out, you know, what's our message? How do we do demand gen? How do we build a partner program? So a lot of the effort was really around building, you know, around building at that point, I think it is that stage. And you, I believe, came in as a consultant initially, didn't you? Um, and then went full time? I did. Yep. Yep. What, what was the part. motivation behind that? And, and what were you kind of testing uh, at that point? Well, I think at that point it was, I was checking out the company. I had worked for the CEO previously at another company. And so came in to do some consulting work to kind of do an evaluation of marketing. Um, he asked me to do kind of, you know, an evaluation for what else could we be doing? How are we doing? What are we doing wrong? Uh, what areas could we double down on? So I started that way. And then I think I was consulting for 30 days or so. And then, then he said, you're ready to be CMO? And I said, yes, yes, I am. You got bit by the bug. Yeah, exactly. And then you mentioned that there was a hiatus in between. And I know you've done uh, some tremendous work for the Boston Children's Hospital. Maybe tell us a little bit about that and why you made the decision to step out of your for-profit role for a while and, and what you did with Boston Children's. Yeah. So after about three years of being CMO at Acquia at that time, I was just at a decision point in my life where I wanted to um, I wanted to give back more. I wanted to figure out uh, how could I kind of spend more time and energy and mind space on my nonprofit efforts. Uh, I run a nonprofit through Boston Children's Hospital. I'm on the board of Boston Children's. And so I dedicated more time to that. And my kiddos were little at the time. So I wanted to spend more time, you know, at home. So, uh, so that's what I did. I left and um, I did that for a couple of years and then got a little bit itchy and decided that I wanted to come back in, maybe look for another CMO role or look to do some more marketing consulting. And at that time, the CEO, same CEO at Acquia gave me a call and said, uh, do you want to have lunch to maybe talk about coming back in and doing some work for us? And I said, perfect timing. Yes, I do. Came back in, did a little consulting for a little bit, fell back in love. And then was quickly the CMO again. You knew you knew that play well at that point when I the did. CEO started I to did. ask you if you wanted to do some consulting. Why Boston Children's though? There are lots of worthy organizations out there that you could have embraced. What was it about that organization that drew you in? My daughter was a patient initially at Boston Children's Hospital. And so I had a lot of exposure uh, to the hospital and, and in particular to the cardiac unit. And so... Um, I got involved with the hospital, started as a, you know, definitely a volunteer. We formed our foundation through Boston Children's. Um, and I really wanted to have an opportunity to kind of to give back and to, you know, help contribute to the hospital and really help in the area of cardiac research to help other children um, who may have been in similar situations to, to what my daughter had faced. And what would you say was your proudest accomplishment in that capacity? I think proudest capacity is probably the 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 research work that's been created and the research that's been done over the past 10 years. And our particular research that we have funded and supported has saved lives. And how could it be more rewarding than that um, in terms of babies and and toddlers whose whose lives are being saved by by just incredible cardiac research? Well, I, I think it is 
so powerful to be able to take this wealth of experience that you developed in the private sector and bring it to a cause uh, like this. And, and I know there have been a lot of guests on the show that have had very personal experiences with nonprofit organizations and have been able to give back through the, the talent and the expertise that they bring. So I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about some of the research that that you and Acquia have published. There was a great piece that you did in the Boston Business Journal that was calling for greater authenticity and personalization. And then you back that up by talking about how the phrases that marketers use often undermine the credibility. And there are specific phrases that just turn the audience off. And you named a few of those phrases. What, what are some of those phrases? Or tell us a little bit about the research. How'd you find those phrases? And then what are the phrases we need to avoid as marketers? <laughs> well, we did. We happened to do some research. We did um, 5,000 consumers, 500 marketers. And it was really all about customer experience. And we did the survey to, to ask people, you know, how are your customer experiences going? Marketers, do you think you're doing a good job developing great, engaging customer experiences? And of course, all the marketers said, yes, yes, we are. We're doing a great job. And most of the consumer says, no, not so much. So there's definitely still a disconnect between uh, building great customer experiences, uh, depending on which you know side of that you're on. It happened to be that it was a, just a couple of months into COVID time. And so we, at the last minute, we decided to just throw some questions in about I wonder how people are feeling about the language that marketers are using now. And what it came back with was kind of interesting because it said that people were very tired about some language that's being used, such as the new normal. <laughs> uh, pivoting is another one that kind of came out strong in terms of that language. And also, um, we're in this together. I think that was the first one. That was the highest one in terms of the uh, the sayings that people didn't like that marketers have been using, you know, during the past year. So I think it's time as marketers that we strike all that vocabulary from our languages. And and also the other thing that became clear was that um, people are people are tired of the jargon and the marketing jargon. And I think it's been one of the silver linings during this time of COVID, where as marketers, and I know we're doing this, and I see a lot of other marketers doing the same. It's the time to strike the jargon and have much more direct messaging, much more concrete value, uh, talking to people, using personalization, but just even striking from our vocabulary, those big, long, jargony, you know, marketing phrases and things that we used to use. And um, people don't need it and don't want it anymore. I think it's so important as marketers that we keep our finger on the pulse, that we're aware of the context, what people need, and in doing so, we're able to engage in a much more meaningful way. So I think that's some great advice. We are going to go and review this podcast and strike all of those phrases that you just articulated. So the listeners will hear none of that in this podcast. I won't speak to how much was in the original cut, but we're covered now. <laughs> Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. So I know you've also thought a lot about customer data platforms and, and Acquia, that's, that's in your wheelhouse. Can you talk a little bit about customer data platforms, what some of the more innovative companies, particularly on the B2C side, are doing with CDPs, and what more broadly B2B marketers can learn from an effective implementation? 
Sure. So we have a customer data platform, which is where our experience comes from, a product uh, that was originally called Agile One. And so we see a lot of use cases for the customer data platform in a variety of different industries. Probably the biggest one, as an example, is, is retail. So, you know, so many retailers had to, you know, make a switch to go when their stores were closed, everything was going on digital. So we know that digital is obviously here to stay forever. Um, and the customer, customer data platform, especially when you're in retail, helps you manage all your customers. So not only do you get a better, are you able to deliver a better personalized experience, but you're able to learn a lot more about your customers, about your market segments. Um, I'll give you an example. Lululemon, I think, is a, a prime example here. So they use customer data platform to keep track of not only all of their customers online, but also in store. And they're able to match a great experience together between digital um, and an in-store experience. So they're able to keep track of their market segments. They're able to know um, what customers are buying what, what are customers interested in, as well as prospects, so that they can do make good marketing decisions like what programs should I offer them? What discounts should I offer? What type of, you know, what's the next best action, if you will, to provide to those customers? And so uh, Lululemon is a great example. Godiva is another great example uh, where they have five or six million you know, records that they're dealing with for their customers, very large amounts of customer data and able, able to manage that. The other thing now that we're seeing is, you know, and it's not just for retail, but for other industries as well. And we're starting to see the growth from some mid-market companies. As part of this, my survey, I asked which companies are now looking at customer data platforms and people that were much more in the mid-market type space and B2B were looking at a customer data platform. So I'll give you another example is Acquia is an example. We are in the B2B example category. I use a customer data platform now to make sure that I'm managing all my customers' data so I know everything about them. And the more I know about those customers, the more accurate I can get with them, the more personalized I can get with them, and the better the better kind of offers I can make. Um, and it doesn't matter whether that's B2B or B2C. It's useful in, in both examples. The power of data, particularly first-party data, is incredible. And historically, marketers just haven't had access to the data, let alone the tools required to analyze the data. But to your point, once you're able to, to get that, uh, it, it definitely opens up new frontiers. I, yeah, I love a term you used, uh, don't be late to the first party data party. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. I was on a, um, a recent event and the CMO from Peloton was on. Now, if you think about like first party data, can you imagine how much first party data they are gathering right now? You know, because everybody is, is, is gone to the biking and the Peloton. And she had an interesting quote where she said, first party data, it's not the party that you want to miss. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I thought that was a great line. I was talking recently to Amy Fuller, who's the CMO over at Accenture. And she talked about an experience early in her career. She was at an agency working for Lean Parents and had done a bunch of focus groups to learn more about usage and, and preference. And she said the data that they got from those ultimately proved to be completely false because people will tell you one thing, the thing that they think you want to hear, and then they'll go off and they'll do something different. And the beauty of first-party data is that it's actually driven by the, the behaviors of the people. So the bias that would exist otherwise just isn't in there. Yeah, it's a really good point. Yeah. Well, the, I think there are some, some tremendous lessons to learn there. I think the other one is once you get the data, what do you do with it? And so my question is, what 
what marketing stack have you built to be able to capitalize on all of this data and roll it into a demand gen engine? I'm a big believer in using our own products or what I call drinking our own champagne. So my own MarTech stack has Acquia products as well as other products such as salesforce.com. And um, so I use a Salesforce engine for my CRM. Uh, I have marketing automation, personalization, uh, Drupal, um, and they all work together as well as now my customer data platform. And I have all those sources uh, tied together and I um, use those sources every day. And I have my marketing operations team that runs my stack. And I have other products that we work with as well, of course, not just Acquia products. Um, and the nice thing about, you know, the Acquia products is they're open, so I can integrate them with other products. And then I have a collection of other, probably 20 other tools that I yeah. have in my stack, everything from, you know, sales outreach type products to People AI, which is very helpful for us, um, as well as a couple of other um, other products, both on the sales side as well as on the on the marketing side. In a conversation with Megan Eisenberg over at Trip Action, she said, you know, she's a huge proponent of cutting edge technology. I think she put a chart together of 40 different products that she had employed. But she said, the thing is, you have to move with deliberation um, or, or move deliberately when you are choosing technology. Otherwise, the technology will start to control the process. Define the process first, define the strategy and the outcomes, and then bring the technology in. Absolutely agree with that. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's definitely the, you know, people process and products. Um, and you have to have all three. Yeah. Well, Lynn, the time has flown by. We're at the top of the hour. And I thought I would end on one final question. As you look back over the arc of your life, and if you had to narrow it down to one thing, what's the one thing that's made the biggest difference in your life? Well, that is a big question. The arc of my life. I would say I think the the biggest thing for me is it's it's been all about relationships. I think relationships with my friends, with my family, uh, with my work colleagues, uh, and so with my customers. So I think for me, it all comes down to relationships, and I care about them, and it's important to me, and it's it's how I kind of run both my personal and professional life. Great answer. Well, Lynn, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams and boxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.